Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's go back to the Amazon story. I'm sure there was uh, real estate investors and speculators in Queens were screaming into their pillows last night as they were trying to process the news that Amazon will not be coming to Long Island City uh, to get a sense of what that means for the local real estate market over in Queens. Let's bring on Ken Weissenberg. Ken is a partner in charge of the real estate services group at Eisner Amper. Uh, he is in New York uh, City. So, Ken, you know, what does it really mean short term? and long-term for the Queens and NYC um, real estate market? Well, on a short-term basis, the speculation that, that was going on in the Long Island City area in terms of people buying up the condos that were available is going to pretty much stop for the time being. Um, I think the contracts that were intended to will go through and be completed. But a lot of the other transactions that were, that were happening are probably going to slow down or stop for the time being. The um, overall market in the Long Island City area is continuing to show, you know, significant progress and growth. Uh, if you look at the site that Amazon was going to pick, it's in an opportunity zone. There's huge interest in the real estate community in developing an opportunity zones. The site happens to be basically on the water on the East River. Um, it's prime for development. I think you'll see a project happen there, whether Amazon, it's Amazon or someone else. So, Ken, in other words, do you think it's not that big of a deal? I think it's a big deal. I mean, I think the political ramifications are a big deal. Uh, the, two, the two sides within the Democratic Party um, have to kind of work things out. But um, Long Island City is going to continue to grow. New York City is going to continue to grow. When you look at the number of jobs in New York City, yes, another 25,000 jobs would have been great. Um, the construction jobs, you know, to build that, that project would have been great. But other things will be built. Other jobs will come in. Uh, New York is out outgrowing San Francisco as a tech center. Um, and Long Island City is seven minutes from Midtown by subway. So, Ken, are you concerned, however, that what happened here with Amazon in the city and the state of New York perhaps might send a signal to other corporations considering New York City, uh, New York city that maybe New York is not open for business? I don't think so. I think this was a, a, a um, targeted political campaign um, that 
ended Amazon. You know, Amazon didn't want to have any controversy around this. Um, well, hold on a second. With open arms, and, and then you know there was a lot of feed, you know a lot of a lot of pushback um, from local politicians. But honestly, Ken, I, I gotta wonder if Amazon didn't want local pushback, why didn't they do more groundwork ahead of this? I mean, it seems kind of strange that everybody was shocked by this decision on the ground, uh, and that Amazon didn't realize that this would be waiting for them. Uh, that is kind of strange. I, w- I would have thought that the political politicians would have been lined up, you know, either for or against way beforehand. Yeah. So here's my question for you, Ken. Um, Focused on the real estate sector, you're saying that you don't think it's going to have a material effect, that that the area will continue to grow. But In in the long term. I mean, in the short term, it's going to be a shock to the system because this was, you know, a real impetus to to grow that that particular section of Long Island City. Could prices decline on on real estate there? Um, From the speculative prices that hit recently yes in the long term i think they'll come back i think they'll be um, just as strong and the growth will will continue so ken does this call into question at all the use of incentives to lower corporations let's just focus on new york city that seemed to be one of the areas that received a lot of pushback um do you think the city and the state will rethink uh some of the incentives it offers for corporations well this this was quite a prize for whoever got the headquarters um and we were in competition with with every, almost every major metropolitan area in the country for for H two Q or H Q two rather. Um, so I think I think they had to put together sweeteners to make make the deal happen. But that's been going on for you know decades, with, where they've been enticing large corporations to move headquarters with with sweeteners. You know, I think that'll continue. Um, maybe you know. Maybe the package was too sweet under the current um, economic climate um, and political climate. But, you know, even without the, the packages that they put together, there was, you know, large incentives under, under existing law that they could have benefited from. One thing that I'm wondering is how much of a pressure the subway system in, in New York affected this. In other words, that train line that went to Long Island City is already very crowded, that if Amazon was going to come, it would strain the infrastructure more than it would help it in the short term. And in the long term, that could make the city less appealing. What do you say to that? And sort of what will this do uh, to efforts to upgrade the subway system? When you look at the overall infrastructure for New York, the infrastructure has been in place probably longer than any other major, major metropolitan area in the United States, um, and it does need refresh and continue rebuild. Uh, the, the first major project in the subway system in 50 years was the Second Avenue subway line, and that's you know been going on for 30 years and not finished yet. Uh, they do need to put significant investment into the infrastructure of New York City and other major, major metropolitan areas around the country. That's more of a federal um, and state combined program, and I'd like to see that happen. Um, a lot of it will be done with private partner, you know, public-private partnerships like what's going on at the airports right now. So, Ken, as New York City in particular continues to try to attract uh, new corporate citizens, and they've had some tremendous success with technology companies, with Google uh, having a big uh, uh, presence in uh, lower Manhattan, Facebook as well. Um, talk to me about how the city positions its cost of living challenges to some of these corporations and, and how that gets balanced, because you know that has to be a, a big challenge for New York City as it attracts uh, corporations. Our rent is cheaper than San Francisco. Not by much, but it's a little cheaper than San Francisco. Um, 
I think the city is, is and, and state have to address, you know, that the housing need for affordable housing for the workforce. Uh, workforce meaning um, policemen, teachers, um, office workers, um, young lawyers and accountants. The prices in Manhattan are, are basically pushing people out. Um, you're seeing development happening in the outer boroughs, Brooklyn and Queens um, are seeing a tremendous amount of development interest. The Bronx is starting to see significant development interest. Uh, and, and certain companies are developing in the transit hubs in the suburbs. Yeah. So that's going to take some, some of the pressure off New York City, but that also requires infrastructure because people have to be on, on accessible and clean, safe uh, transit. Ken Weisenberg, thank you so much for being with us. Ken Weisenberg, partner in charge of the Real Estate Services Group at Eisner Amper in New York, talking about the potential ramifications of Amazon withdrawing from the Long Island City site for its headquarters to Project HQ2. It seems to be a growing feeling that in the short run, it might have an issue. It might have an impact on prices over the long term. uh, A little bit more optimism about New York in, in terms of its tech growth. Yeah, I, it, we've we've already seen a lot of uh, tech come in, as I mentioned before, you know, Facebook and, and uh, Alphabet is here. And of course, Cornell has their big tech center uh, in, in the city as well. So uh, and we've seen news reports about how, you know, uh, New York is adding more tech jobs than, than San Francisco. So certainly has a strong foundation there. But you have to wonder about the the political support of, um, you know, making tech even a bigger part of the New York City corporate scene. When you think about the 25 to 27 billion dollars of economic value added over or created over a 25-year period by yeah. this Walmart, uh, I mean, by the Amazon uh, move against the $3 billion in, in subsidies. Uh, that seems like uh, favorable economics, yet uh, that perhaps wasn't enough. Let's find out a little bit more about what is expected to uh, come from this declaration of an emergency. Anna Edgerton is joining us now, congressional reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our 1991 studios in Washington, D.C. Anna, thank you so much for being with us. So uh, talk about what the precedent is for declaring a a state of an emergency, a national emergency to divert funds away from other projects towards something that the president would like to see. Well, that's, that's an interesting question. It's kind of two different questions because declaring a national emergency is not unheard of. Uh, Barack Obama declared a national emergency to combat the swine flu. Uh, George, uh, George W. Bush declared a national emergency after 9-11. So declaring a national emergency happens from time to time. But your, the second part of your question, to shift funds from one part of the budget to another part, is unprecedented. And that's where we're going to run into a real constitutional challenge, because according to Article One of the Constitution, it's Congress that has the power of the purse. And there's an appropriations process that goes through Congress. And what the president is trying to do with this declaration is divert taxpayer money to his priority outside the regular appropriation process. And that's going to be challenged on constitutional grounds. Clearly, um, I think, uh, Lisa, the issue here is we know his intention is to uh, continue to fund uh, the border wall. The question is what type of, uh, I think, uh, I think, 
challenge will he receive from various members of Congress and, and over what time frame? Well, I will say this. It's interesting to see how he's going to try to cast this as a win. And it'll be interesting to see President Trump's tone. I was interested in the Wall Street Journal opinion article uh, that came out today from the editorial board uh, talking about how signing, uh, de- declaring a national emergency is a problem and is actually basically how he painted himself into a corner. Kind of interesting, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, usually uh, a conservative uh, place with, with conservative opinions, but really highlighting this fissure in the Republican Party over declaring a national emergency. Will this give a precedent to the Democrats to do the same if there is a Democratic president, also trying to figure out what kinds of lawsuits this exposes uh, the Trump administration to, not only from opponents of some of these funding uh, rediversions, but also, frankly, the residents that would have to exit their homes due to eminent domain in order to allow this wall to be built. So a lot of issues here. This is going to get tied up in the courts for a while. Uh, also a question of where the money is going to come from and you know what projects will have to be jeopardized as a result of that. But that said, there still is a core of President Trump supporters who would like to see the wall. He has made this a campaign speech issue. He has made this one of the hallmarks of his tenure. And he doesn't want to go down without this victory, even if it's just on paper. Yeah, it could be a Pyrrhic victory, but uh, clearly it looks like uh, President Trump and the administration is going to fight very hard for this. We do have Anna Edgerton back, congressional reporter for Bloomberg News, calling from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Anna, uh, thanks for coming back. Uh, I guess the, the question here now is just kind of next steps. How does this play out in your opinion? There, so there are two things that we're looking for from the democratically-led House of Representatives. The first is a legal challenge. I spoke with uh, Jerry Nadler. He's the Democrat in charge of the Judiciary Committee, and he said that the House counsel will pursue legal challenges to this. The other avenue to challenge this is a joint resolution that would start in the House of Representatives. So uh, Nadler has already said that he is going to put question this this national emergency declaration in a resolution. Now that's privileged. So that means it'll go through the Judiciary Committee. It'll get put on the floor of the House. It will probably pass a Democratic House. And within 15 days, it has to be voted in the Senate. So it's not up to Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, whether or not to put it on the floor. So it's going to be really interesting to see if all Democrats vote against this national emergency declaration and some Republicans who have kind of constitutional qualms with this, um, it could pass because it only needs 51 votes. If it's privileged, it doesn't have to get past the filibuster. I think it's interesting, though, Mitch McConnell uh, supports declaration of in a national emergency. And we've seen this uh, just the leadership of the Republicans seems to be behind President Trump. What can you draw from that? That was a really interesting development. And he almost kind of used that as a way to encourage some of his hesitant members to vote for the spending bill yesterday to say, you know, there will be wall money coming from elsewhere. The president will declare a national emergency. I think this is a political calculation for Mitch McConnell. He knows that this is a very strong campaign promise from the president. And in order to kind of keep that core base with them, they need to do more than they were allowed to do under the normal appropriations process in divided government. So this definitely looks like a kind of a a political move that McConnell might not like, but kind of weighing what's at stake felt like he had to. So, Anna, what's the sense of where the rank and file 
uh, Republican Party, uh, particularly in the in the Senate, where are they falling down on this issue? Are they really willing to go uh, and stand behind the president on this? It's pretty divided right now. And senators yesterday were a little wary to kind of get ahead of their skis before the national declaration is the emergency declaration is actually declared, and also to see which pots of money will be tapped for this. But we. There was one really interesting response from Mike Simpson that I wanted to highlight. He said that uh, he does think the president has pretty broad legal authority to do this the way that the national emergency statute is written. But he does worry about the precedent. And he said, you know, I do think the president has legal authority to to do this. Maybe it's the best course of action since he couldn't get wall money any other way. But the next time we have a Democratic president, we could have a healthcare national emergency that gets us Medicare for all. We could have a climate emergency that gets us the Green New Deal. So, you know, kind of opening this up as an acceptable practice really kind of changes the way the two branches of government interact. We're speaking with Anna Edgerton, uh, congressional reporter for Bloomberg News, as we await President Trump to uh, make comments after his expected signing of the bill to stave off another government shutdown, as well as a declaration of a national emergency, which he's also expected to do. And I'd love to get your sense just going forward. Where would the money actually come from? Can you give us a sense? of the projects that could get delayed, postponed, not happen as a result of money getting diverted to the wall, should this happen? Yeah, my colleague Margaret Talib reported yesterday that the president has identified $8 billion, uh, almost $8 billion that could be directed for this purpose. And the kind of pots of money we're looking at are unobligated funds that could come from military accounts. Although speaking with Jerry Nadler, a Democratic chair of the Judiciary Committee yesterday, he said you can't use military money for this purpose because military money can only be directed to military uses. And by law, the military can't enforce domestic law. So that could be one snag. We could also see money being moved from uh, funds to rebuild an air base in Florida that was damaged by the hurricane, and also in Camp Lejeune in North Carolina that was damaged by the floods. So there are a few different things that the president's looking at, but um, we expect that to be clear pretty much before the beginning of next week. So, Anna, obviously, this uh, border wall is a, a arguably the the foundational uh, element of the uh, Trump presidency, at least to this point. But is there any sense that you know, fatigue is setting in within the administration that maybe it's just not worth it. There's just too many roadblocks here and it doesn't seem to be a clear path uh, to get this funding. I don't know if there's I mean, I think there's a kind of a constant fatigue in the administration just because it just, you know, kind of happens at such a high frequency. But there certainly is a kind of political concern that the more the president kind of sacrifices or puts himself out there to pursue this one priority, the more damage he could be doing in other areas. Like, for example, the government shutdown, you know, was supported by those who really, really want to build a border wall, but it really made the president's approval ratings take a hit. And you kind of see him compensating for that a little bit. There was a really interesting piece in Politico last week kind of highlighting the overt embrace of pro-life 
priorities and kind of really attacking the state laws that have been in the news recently about abortion. And that's the president trying to shore up his evangelical base. So even as he pursues the wall and does everything he can, maybe even you know using some of his political capital to do that, he's trying to kind of shore up his coalition in other areas as well. Anna Edgerton, uh, we will please be speaking with you soon. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Well, lots of news coming out of Washington, D.C. as we just uh, listened to President uh, Trump's uh, press conference uh, about uh, the government funding uh, for border security, talking about China trade. Let's get a sense of how a lot of these geopolitical issues are impacting the U.S. and global credit market. We bring in Michael Temple. Michael's the director of corporate credit, U.S. and portfolio manager for Amundi Pioneer. Amundi Pioneer has approximately $80 billion under management. Uh, Michael joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. Michael, thanks for being with us. Um, a lot of geopolitical noise out there, news out there, whether it is China, whether it is the U.S. government shutdown, whether it's Brexit, how does that factor into your analysis of the credit markets? Well, you know, I think it's a top-down factor that we have to think about um, how it might affect um, consumer confidence, how it might affect business confidence, and whether or not at the margin uh, it's going to create uh, slower economic economic activity either in the U.S. or overseas. So if you look at the bottom up, you see companies that still have pretty high leverage, even though there's some deleveraging going on. You see high yield bond yields uh, that have come down dramatically, more than 5% return so far this year. Are we out of the woods with respect to another credit crisis or could we see another one? Well, I think a lot of it depends on um, whether or not uh, the slowdown that we're seeing globally, uh, in particular in Europe, and uh, you just heard about uh, China, uh, whether or not that ends up causing a much more rapid deceleration of growth in the U.S. Uh, if it does, then we're going to revisit this problem uh, sometime in the near future. If it doesn't, if the Fed backing away causes an improvement in confidence and uh, the economy is fine, then uh, I, th- I think we've probably seen, a, seen this for the last time for a while. Okay. So if the economy does slow materially in the U.S., mm-hmm. what will be the epicenter of the next credit crisis? Well, You know, it's a good question. A lot of people are looking at the U.S. credit markets as the point of a problem. And, of course, everybody looks back to the last cycle when uh, uh, bank loans were doing really poorly and you had enormous defaults in the U.S. I actually don't think it's necessarily going to be the U.S. that's the epicenter. I think it's going to be uh, overseas. Um, Clearly, growth is a lot slower in Europe right now, and you're seeing uh, a number of countries in recession. So could you see defaults and increasing problems in Europe that ultimately cycle back to the U.S.? And what about China? What if China cannot reinvigorate growth with its current stimulus program? um, Then we could start to see problems uh, coming out of China. So. if, if, if the Fed is on the sidelines, which it appears to be, mm-hmm. does that imply that we're in a trading range here, for, at least for the short term? 
I think so. Uh, you know, you've seen a, a tremendous rebound in credit spreads. Uh, so the question will be, now that the Fed's off the table, what will be the next factor that could potentially either cause credit, what, uh, credit spreads to tighten or widen? Um, I think now the market's going to be focused on the um, on earnings growth. So, you know, I coined a phrase, fed up with the Fed. Uh, I think the market's done trying to figure out what the Fed's going to do. The Fed has basically said we're on hold for some period of time, so everyone's going to be focusing on different things. So is the market fed up with the Fed? They are for right now. Next week, though, the Fed will meet, and I'm sure everybody will be uh, laser-focused on them once again and parsing every word of Fed speak. Michael Temple, thank you so much for being with us. Michael Temple, Director of Corporate Credit uh, U.S. and uh, Portfolio Manager for Amundi Pioneer, which oversees $80 billion. Definitely interesting to think, are we out of the woods if the Fed is on hold? People still want to know, though, what they're going to do with their balance sheet. Uh, and certainly, there is a lot of discussion about whether we have seen the last rate hike of the credit cycle. Amazon.com project scuttled in Long Island City raises a lot of questions about the municipal bond market and, frankly, uh, infrastructure development using those funds. A focus on Muni's is brought to you by Build America Mutual. BAM, Green Star Bonds finance projects that re- protect and restore the environment with more renewable energy and efficient transportation and buildings. Visit buildamerica.com slash greenstar. BAM, Building America. Joining us as he does to talk Muni's every Every week, Joe Mysack, editor for the Bloomberg Brief, focused on the municipal bond market. So I want to start there with Amazon, the idea that, you know, there was all of this uh, activity that was supposed to be coming there, a lot of money from tax revenues, albeit not the extra $3 billion of tax breaks that they did get. Are there any projects that you know of that have actually been scuttled or seriously called into question by Amazon's exit from Long Island City? Uh, Just from the Amazon effect or nationally? I mean, I don't think there have been any, you know, New York projects that people have decided, no, forget about it, let's not do it now. But I guess that then on a national level, has there been anything, uh, any movement with respect to oh, uh, cities cities, uh, and, and sort of inviting businesses in with, with the potential for mm. rebates and things like that? No, this is the way it's done. You know, the providing these tax subsidies, and it's not cash, it's, you know, it's kind of a tax cut, if you will, over a period of years, is an acceptable way, and it has been an acceptable way of doing business now for decades, I want to say. And, you know, I think it's going to go away because of Foxconn and Wisconsin. We've had some very good coverage of that this week a much bigger disaster than this Amazon business and of course the Amazon business uh, that's not going away every once in a while you'll hear about a city rejecting the idea of subsidies for a sports stadium but otherwise nah yeah, that's what I want to go to, Joe. I mean, the subsidies issues w- was one of the issues that I think some of the the folks that came out against the Amazon deal cited. Um, you know, why should New York City provide three billion dollars of subsidies to the you know the biggest company in the world, the wealthiest person in the world? But that is a key part of how these deals are done. Do you see any change to that? Man, you know, I I have I have two words for uh, municipalities out there who all of a sudden decide that, yeah, they're not going to play the subsidy game anymore, and that is Brooklyn Dodgers. 
in theory, that's going back, Joe. Brooklyn, get- Brooklyn's heart was ripped out for decades when the Dodgers left. In theory, I mean, arguably, you could say they never recovered. It never recovered. The Dodgers should still be in Brooklyn. However, the game wasn't played, and this is what happens. So fine. You know, you happy now? I mean, I want to ask some of these politicians, particularly Janaris, I guess. Uh, you happy now? You're not getting these jobs? You're not getting this revenue? Huh, what was the trade? $3 billion for $28 billion and probably higher? Yeah, well, I th- this definitely will uh, will cause some soul searching among a variety of different uh, New York political figures. I do want to shift gears a little bit from one coast to another, California, scaling back its plans for a high speed rail line. What's the deal here? And uh, you know, are there any financing uh, plans or expectations that are going to be affected by this? Well, the state uh, uh, voters approved $10 billion for high-speed rail in California. And that money, those bonds, will be sold. Some of them already have been sold. And they will use that authorization on a much scaled back. So you're not getting Los Angeles to San Francisco. You're getting more like a Central Valley, uh, you know, uh, link, if you will. Um it's very disheartening. I mean, I think the whole the whole high speed rail thing. I you know sometimes I almost wonder that uh, this is really more of a federal project than anything else. Yeah, I think when the state of California that loves the automobile, I'm not sure how <laughs> embraced a train would be, but they could certainly use some help with the congestion there. So, and Joe, then you had in Florida, you had the, uh, the that's no longer called Brightline Virgin, the Virgin Trains, the Virgin. but they had they, to cancel their IPO, cancel the IPO, and said, "Well, we have other sources of money." So the railroad game is very difficult to play. It's a very difficult game. Very costly. So let's go to another area that seems to be doing a little bit better from a municipal bond perspective, and that's my favorite muni bond topic, which is Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico had a good week last week with the senior secured bonds. What are next steps for Puerto Rico as it tries to dig out from this bankruptcy? Oh, and they got to decide on the uh, on, on whether or not they're going to go through with this repudiation of $6 billion. I imagine this is something that has to be decided in court over perhaps the rest of this year but uh, you know we'll I mean we'll certainly see how they uh, move along because the geos are next that's the next logical thing I think there's 17 billion in geos they want to repudiate six billion that were sold uh, because they thought that those bonds ran into the uh, debt limit on the Commonwealth Joe Mysack, thank you so much for being with us as always. Joe Mysack, uh, he is editor of the Bloomberg Brief, focused on the municipal bond market, uh, checking out all things in the muni world, which has been hot recently, especially as a number of uh, Congress members talk about a possible revival of an infrastructure deal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, 
a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.